You're listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Gray. Join me as we cover topics about nutrition, health, and lifestyle so you can have ancestral health in a modern world. This episode is brought to you by Ancestral Elements Supplements. If you're looking for whole food, high-quality, wild-crafted supplements, look at Ancestral Elements Supplements. I offer a liver and colostrum supplement, as well as a wild bear clover tincture. With my background in food science, I'm able to personally formulate and create my own supplement line to ensure the integrity and quality of each product. In both supplements that I offer, none contain any fillers. They're strictly 100% food items, making them completely bioavailable and non-disruptive to the gut microbiome. For further information, go to AncestralElements.com and navigate to the supplements page. Now, here's the episode. Welcome back to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. This is episode 56. Excessive Human Inputs and the Hidden Costs in Food. This week we're going to cover kind of a multitude of different aspects in regards to the food system at large. I want to go into concepts about conventional farming practices and how it factors into things like environmental impact, sustainability, and most importantly, your nutrition. We're going to cover both kind of plants and animals on this one, and we're going to take a hard look at how things are evolving in those spaces and kind of where they've come from, because there is a long history of humans changing their landscape and utilizing tools and techniques from the landscape. It's impossible for you as a human and an individual to leave no trace when it comes to the environment. You will always have some type of environmental impact. What really matters is the sustainability of that impact. And that word sustainability is extremely loaded. I want to give you the dictionary definition of what sustainability is, and then let's kind of break it down from there. So the dictionary definition of sustainability is avoidance of the depletion of natural resources in order to maintain an ecological balance. And that last part of that definition is key here. We're talking about ecological balance. And for those of you who don't know, ecology encompasses all of biology, not just the biology that we want to save and utilize to advance our own agendas. So really, what that means for you as an individual, when you partake in a landscape of balanced ecology, therefore sustainability, then you're going to be deriving foods that are in their complete nutritional form. In other words, they're going to be in higher nutrition density than foods that aren't maintaining an ecological balance. So if you're working within an ecological balance, sustainability is just a part of that structure. The moment you start to break from an ecological balance, sustainability starts to fall apart. So let's dive from the more kind of general here into the concrete. Think about the difference between monoculture and biodynamic farming or regenerative agriculture. Most people understand by now that monocrops aren't sustainable. In other words, they break ecology. If we're keeping with the definition of sustainability, monocrops are fighting ecology, meaning they require way more human inputs into the landscape to keep a non-natural process afloat. 
And that's a really key takeaway to understand. The more human inputs you have into a system means the less sustainable it will eventually become. Because if something happens and there's a breakdown with human inputs, then that whole system fails. And I think that that's pretty clear and most people can understand that concept. Whereas something like regenerative agriculture, that requires less and less human inputs. Don't get me wrong, it can be a lot of workload up front to get those natural processes revamped and restarted from a very fractured landscape. But once those are in motion, the human inputs then can be backed off. And it has this kind of perpetual sustainability and rhythm baked into that whole system. That's the complete opposite of monocropped agriculture. And the other thing to take into consideration is the scale, the size of any type of agriculture or animal husbandry that you're doing. See, small-scale farms, due to at least the North American model of farming that we're currently under, aren't really that economically sustainable, just due to the fact that you have to have massive scalability to turn an economic profit, whereas historically, small-scale farming and agriculture was how it was done. It was done for the family unit and maybe a slightly extended family unit through community. But now, due to subsidies and the whole economic model that farming and agriculture is under, it has to be on a massive scale. And that's why you get these massive monocropped agricultural kind of conglomerates that have to keep scaling and keep their profitability above water. Whereas if you're just doing a small little kind of permaculture setup on your own property, you don't need to worry about any of that. If you're just growing kind of food for yourself and family and maybe some neighbors, right, it becomes very, very affordable. And the more you put into that over the years, the more the natural rhythms and cycle get back into land and you start to replenish what's been taken out through deforestation, mining, whatever it is on the landscape that you're on, you can start to bring that land back to life. Because the thing to think about is any land that you're buying has been drastically altered. There isn't landscape in North America that hasn't been changed by human habitation. And really, that can pretty much go across the globe. Where humans have been, we've changed landscapes. But it's the changing of the landscapes where you have a choice to make. You can have the choice to change it for the better or change it for the worse. And this current model of growing monocultured crops and spreading those concepts across the globe is extremely damaging, not only to the environment and the habitat at large, but all the species and kingdoms of life that inhabit that landscape. And the more you do that, the more you're partaking in an unsustainable system because you're disrupting massive amounts of land and habitat that could be left in a more natural state to support all those kingdoms of life that are in that landscape. And really, we're at a point now with most of the landscapes on this continent, they need to be repaired. You can't just go out and start organically farming because it doesn't work that well with such damaged soils. You have to literally repair things put it back to a little bit of a neutral state so you then can develop it. It would be like if you broke your arm and you had a compound fracture and the bone was sticking through the skin. You would want to set that 
and then cast it before you started using it again. It wouldn't be functional. Same thing goes for the landscape. And generally, when academia, let's say, is talking about sustainability through animal husbandry or farming practices, they're talking about greenhouse gases and wanting to get back to carbon neutral state, which is all fine and well, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But if you're only looking at two factors, two variables, when you're measuring sustainability, you're missing out on everything else in ecology that keeps it in balance. So in other words, if all you care about is sequestering carbon, then you could throw every human input at that and still be largely unsustainable because you're not in ecological balance. And when talking about ecological balance, it's not something that can be extremely manipulated and forced. You can't force nature and ecology into balance. It's something that has to happen naturally with its natural seasons and rhythms to it. You can't manhandle your way into ecological balance. It just doesn't work. So throwing more and more human inputs at it is inherently unsustainable. It goes quite literally against the actual dictionary definition of sustainability because you're trying to force something that's out of balance into balance with unbalanced ideologies. So if you're monocrop growing something like soybeans, if you grow soya year after year after year, you're going to deplete the soil so much that that soil will not support life. It not only won't support the soybeans that you're growing, it won't support other forms of life, like bacteria and archaea and fungi. And then you start literally damaging all the other species that inhabit just soil, and it becomes dirt. The difference between soil and dirt is soil is nutrient-rich. It's life-rich. It has biodiversity in it. And when you strip all that out, then it forms a desert. And that's been seen for thousands and thousands of years. That's an unsustainable practice that's being now practiced on such a scale that it's damaging to our on the whole. If you go back about 10,000 years to the Fertile Crescent in kind of Turkey, Egypt region, that was extremely fertile landscape. When people started organically farming, they started to deplete that landscape. They were forcing crops for a population that was booming because of the abundance of food. So even with organic farming, you need to be very conscious not to deplete the soils, and you need to be rotating crops and giving soils time to rest and rejuvenate before you plant more. And that's what really regenerative agriculture is all about. You give the soil time. You give those species and those kingdoms of life time to balance back out. And if you don't do that, if you're constantly just requiring more and more workload for the soil, it's going to be depleted. It would be like trying to work 24 hours a day for 15 years. I mean, a person couldn't sustain that. And that's the costs that you see from massive scaling of agriculture and animal husbandry for that matter, is that it becomes inherently unsustainable. You're trying to produce too much product. You're trying to squeak out too much productivity in an unnatural, unsustainable way. And the system starts to break down. There's too much demand. And that's the difference between production and scale, is if you keep the scale small and you're not worried about ultra-producing, then things start to become scalable again, right? A small family garden produces excess food for the family. And if you've ever had a garden, 
you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. People are always trying to get rid of food because for just a handful of people, you can grow way more food than you can eat and still keep it very sustainable. And there are obviously some things that people have figured out since, you know, farming 10,000 years ago in the Fertile Crescent. There's things like mycorrhizal fungi that can help root structures of plants and biochars that can help that can help the sustainability of the soils. So there are some tools in the toolkit that you can turn to, but by and large, you can never force a natural process and expect it to be sustainable in the long term. And as you move through history, you have this kind of insatiable appetite for more. And that starts to be seen through things like selective breeding and getting plants bigger and that produce at higher volumes. But what that does nutritionally is what's called a dilution effect. So the bigger you grow something like grapes or bananas or any type of vegetable or whatever it is, any type of crop, the more dilution of nutrients you're going to get. So in other words, your skin, the skin of whatever you're growing stretches out and you lose flavonoids and key minerality in that thin skin, and it fills with water. And so the water content increases, your nutrient content decreases. So the demand of the population starts to outweigh the sustainability and the nutritional status of the very food that you're growing to feed the population. And there's a tipping point to that. And we're way past the tipping point. Again, you cannot battle ecology and nature and expect it to turn out well. You know, it took us a long time to realize that there is something called the dilution effect and that the nutrition of conventionally grown crops is extremely limited versus their wild phenotypes. That's why if you can compare conventionally grown crops to wild crops, their wild type is way higher in nutrition than their conventionally grown type, even if they're organically grown. Now, organically produced crops are often higher in nutrients because there's more nutrients in the soils than something like a GMO crop, but compared to wild, it's not even close. Now, if you can set up an environment that kind of encompasses heirloom varieties or wild plants for that matter, then things stabilize out. You're not going to get the production with wild foods or even heirloom crops a lot of the time, but you get higher nutrition. So something like an heirloom tomato that has really old genetics, it's not a high producer. You're not going to get that many tomatoes versus some hybridized, very conventional tomato. Those are two very different plants. And they require very different nutrient profiles. A very mass-produced conventional tomato plant can be grown in conditions that an older heirloom variety would be very sick in. But ultimately, that shifts the nutritional profile of that plant and of that fruit. And when you're eating that, that's going to shift your nutrient profile. But if you're just growing some tomatoes for you and your family... An heirloom variety is plenty. You know, you can can those tomatoes and eat them basically all year round. If you scale that up, you know, to population level on the aggregate, that's a very different model to be working in. So what I'm saying is, if you can scale things back and bring things back to basics, bring it back to the family unit, essentially, where you have your garden and are growing your food then you can keep things legitimately sustainable, especially if you're incorporating regenerative soil techniques, not only in your garden, but 
across your land if you own land, or at least supporting local farmers that are doing that kind of work, then you're not fighting ecology, you're working within it. And not only working within it, but enhancing it and increasing the sustainability through generation. And if you're listening to this and are thinking, well, I have zero space to garden. Do you have a balcony? Can you pot some herbs up? Or can you grow an heirloom tomato plant? Even little tiny steps like that will lead to just a tiny fraction of sustainability. It's a few less tomatoes that you're going to go out and buy. Or if you literally have zero space or zero time to even grow some potted plants, go to a farm that's doing regenerative work, meet the farmers, make sure that it's actually sustainable and regenerative, and support them. Pretty much everybody that's listening to this could do at least a fraction of that to some degree. You know, you can grow lettuce on a windowsill. You can grow some rosemary, you know, or chives or, you know, whatever you like. It's very cheap to do. Anybody could do that. If you have an iPhone and are listening to this, then you can grow a tomato plant. You know what I mean? Like, it's not complicated and it's not expensive. And the more you take part in that, the more you kind of begin to understand these types of concepts. And if you're living in a city and really don't have the space, see if there's some community gardens around. A lot of times you can rent an allotment for reasonably cheap. They're really not expensive. And then you have a kind of a built-in community of gardeners that if you don't have skills, a lot of them will kind of help you out. I mean, that's always an option. See if there's a community garden around if you're in an urban area. Chances are there may be. You know, there's a lot of lack of action when it comes to nutrition. You know, it's a really rare thing for a mainstream dietitian to engage in any type of farming or animal husbandry practices, or especially wild plant foraging or hunting or fishing. You know, if you do that, you're kind of, you're out there for most people. You know, most people live in urban areas and are dealing with people living in urban areas that have no concept of any of this. And so they just take guidelines kind of as they come. And if new information comes up, they tweak their guidelines a little bit. But there's not a ton of action and there's not a ton of understanding typically for people that are giving these nutritional recommendations. You know, people may go to the farmer's market, but a lot of people have never been to that farm. Maybe some have, but a lot of people treat a farmer's market as if it was a supermarket. They don't know where that food's coming from. They don't know the conditions that it's actually grown in, and they've never actually seen the farm that the food is coming off of. It could be completely just littered with trash and all sorts of things, and you would never know. There'd be no way to tell just by looking at the carrots that are brought to the farmer's market. That stuff matters. So the more that you can grow yourself, at least you know for a fact that it's grown in a sustainable, regenerative type of way. And if you absolutely hate gardening and the work that that requires, can you plant a fruit tree? Or can you learn a few plants to just go out and forage? Or can you go out and fish or hunt? Right? There's alternatives to gardening, obviously. And you probably should do all of it. I mean, that's what I try to do, right? Having a garden is a great thing because it connects you into the soil. You know what's kind of going on underneath your feet. If you have the skills to fish and hunt, even better. You know what's going on in your own bioregion. Can you go to a local lake and get some trout? Or can you do a little pheasant hunting or quail hunting or deer hunting? Can you get some wild plants in your bioregion, right? Most people could do that if they really chose to. Again, it's just about kind of integrating you into that landscape, you know, but that's the thing. Most people are so con disconnected from a natural landscape 
that these things become really skewed. And so you get to a point where you have multinational corporations lobbying for plant-based meats and how they're going to save the world with environmental sustainability using monocropped soya and pea crops, for example. And again, if you go back to the actual definition <laughs> of sustainability, it means keeping ecology in balance. And monocropping anything is never going to keep ecology in balance, ever. End of discussion. So when you have big companies that require massive amounts of inputs in order to produce a single product, that's inherently unsustainable and will always be unsustainable. Just by sheer operational capacity, it's unsustainable. If you can't do it on a small scale and keep it sustainable, scaling up isn't going to make it sustainable. There was this quote that I ran across the other day from the CEO of Impossible Foods. His name is Pat Brown. And the quote is this, animals are an extremely inefficient technology of turning plant matter into meat. Think about that for a second. First off, animals are about the most efficient thing for turning plants into meat. That's literally their metabolic process. And if you're talking about the cow, that process of turning plants into meat has been done since the aurochs. If that's inefficient, then evolution itself is inefficient. And they're thinking that humans are more efficient than a natural biological species. I highly doubt that. I've seen and interacted with plenty of food scientists, and I can tell you they are not more efficient than a cow or any other animal that you could possibly eat for meat. And the fact that he called animals technology is a bit frightening. If you break that quote down, calling a biological entity technology is a bit frightening, and it kind of shows the mindset of the people that own these companies and that are doing this kind of ultra-novel te technological advancements in food and nutrition science. That's not a world that I personally want to partake in. I know plenty of people do, but it's not something I'm up for. And I'm not going to tell you personally what to do one way or another. You're going to have to decide for yourself what world you want to be a part of. But I can tell you point blank that the process of monocropping soya and pea plants and turning them into a plant-based meat is highly inefficient and requires vast amount of human inputs to complete that process. First off, you have to have farmers that plant the crops, that tend the crops. You have to have more people that harvest the crops. Then you have to have drivers that ship the cro crops to holding facilities. Then from the holding facilities, you have to ship them to the labs. Then you have to have workers assemble all the products. Then you have to have people that package and distribute those products. And these people are thinking that that is more efficient than an animal that's already on the planet producing its young and that just needs a field of grass to eat. It doesn't add up. And the definition of sustainability in something like impossible foods in that realm of technology is all based on carbon credits and greenhouse gases. And when you can buy carbon credits, literally purchase them, then you can create an illusion of sustainability, even when that process isn't actually sustainable. Remember, don't forget the de actual definition of sustainability. It means balancing ecology. And that process I just described 
does not balance ecology. It strips the land of ecology. It requires tons of human inputs. All those human inputs have an impact on that ecology that strips minerality, biodiversity, and soil health from the land. That process is inherently unsustainable and will always be unsustainable. Don't be fooled by the marketing on this. And that's not to say that I'm advocating for factory farming feedlot stuff either, because I'm absolutely not. That's not a sustainable process either. What I'm advocating for is taking some personal responsibility for the food that you're eating, whether you're doing it yourself, which is the best thing to do, or if you have personal relationships and trust built with the people that are growing and producing the food that you're eating. That model isn't even in the, in the same arena as a conventional agriculture or plant-based or animal husbandry model. It's typical that the people advocating for very unsustainable processes, especially in food and nutrition, are really just looking to turn a profit. And they kind of mask that as sustainability to make it more palatable for people to accept. And that's exactly what's going on here, in my opinion. You know, you can create the illusion of saving the planet and this kind of ultimate sustainability. And people will buy into that because they have no knowledge and wisdom of the natural world because they've been so disconnected from the natural processes that they don't even know what it actually takes. The, the majority of people have never seen an animal slaughtered in their lives. If you've never raised an animal and then butchered it, you have no idea about the, that entire process and life cycle and what it takes. Then you can easily buy into this illusion of sustainability through monocropped agriculture and a ton of human inputs. And I'm not saying you have to directly raise a, you know, raise livestock and butcher it yourself, but can you go to a farm and learn about rotational grazing and what it takes for getting something like cattle through the winter, you know? Most farmers love what they do. They're sure, they're certainly not doing it for the money. You know, they're doing it for the love of the work and that they love to share the process of how it all works. They would be more than, most farmers would be more than happy to kind of share their wisdom and expertise with anybody who wants to listen. And that would be a great starting point for most people. You know, it's about time that we start taking a little bit more personal responsibility for the food that we we are building our bodies out of. We have this kind of blind faith when it comes to food and the distribution of that food and the food always being there. But the system is extremely fragile. And I'm not saying all of it's going to fall apart and end tomorrow, but we've already seen some slight disruptions in the food system at large. And if we keep on an unsustainable route that we're currently on, in that trajectory that we're taking, it's only going to get worse. So if you want to really do something about it, you're going to have to start taking a bit of personal responsibility for the food that's going in your body. And start small, if you've never thought about this before. Again, grow some herbs. You know, grow tomato plant. You know, if you do have some land and you have the ability to grow a garden, grow a garden, you know. Or, again, learn how to fish or do a little hunting. And if you can garden, fish, hunt, and forage, you're on a really good path and leaning towards much more sustainability than the average person. But you really have to understand the actual definition of sustainability. You know, it's not just about sequestering carbon. 
that's an element of it. But it's about living in true dynamic flow with ecology and working with it, not fighting against it. If you fight against it, that is relentless work. I mean, any conventional farmer will tell you that. It's nonstop, relentless work. It's like you're in a 24-hour boxing match. Even when you're rotating crops, which conventional farmers do to keep the soil bolstered up a little bit, but you're still battling and you're still ultimately fracturing the landscape and depleting the soils. You know, you're not going to be farming the same land for a hundred years, not in the conventional model. You could do that in a regenerative model, you know, and if you really start thinking about generational health and being generationally fed and supporting your kids and grandkids and their kids, this all starts to kind of come into to perspective a little bit more. You would obviously want to be living in a more sustainable model than we currently are if you're thinking about future generations. But a lot of us are so consumed with our own lives that we don't really even think about future generations when it comes to food. And if we do, a lot of it is kind of swept up into technology instead of scaling down getting back to basics, and evaluating where we've kind of gone off the rails. I mean, technology can do some amazing things. I'm not against technology when it comes to food production, but it has to be in the direction of sustainability in order to actually be effective. Otherwise, it just requires too many human inputs. And if there's a breakdown in those inputs, then the whole thing topples over. So if you can frame in these types of perspective and keep it really practical, in your own life and in your family's life. Eating a five kingdom balanced diet that's based on your own region and seasonality, that's how you start to get at some of this stuff. I mean, that's how you take these big ideas and turn them into action. And if more people can start to do that, then we'll start to make some actual headway. All right, I think that'll do it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. As always, eat a varied five kingdom diet. And I'll talk to you guys this next week. Thank you for listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, leave me a rating and review. This will ensure that people can find the podcast so that we can grow the audience. And it will help me secure guests for future episodes. If you have suggestions on what you want to hear on upcoming episodes, go to AncestralElements.com and leave me a comment. I would love to hear your guys' thoughts and inputs and answer any questions that you may have.